0: Okay, proceeding uh, on with supply and demand, uh, we have our falling demand curve and the vertical supply line, like so, and uh, intersecting at the market equilibrium price with price on the y-axis, quantity on the x-axis. And now we come to a second figure two, where we now see what happens when, uh, how we get to the famous forward sloping supply curve that all of you are probably familiar with. The, uh, <clears throat> the forward sloping supply curve in the textbook is really strictly uh, mathematically incorrect. What it really does is present you a uh, long-run focus of what's going to happen uh, after adjustments can be made, in other words, after months and years of adjustments in the production system. For example, suppose when we have uh, widgets Widgets are a very hypothetical uh, uh, product that some, some of these only economists like to talk about. Uh, non existent hypothetical, therefore <coughs> has no properties. All right, and uh, this is the demand curve for widgets and the supply line for widgets. There are 2 million widgets being produced every year, and this is the equilibrium price. And then something happens. All of a sudden, there's a big increase, let's say, in the demand for widgets. Uh, it could be because <coughs> uh, the leaders, the social leaders of the, of the country, of the world, uh, all of a sudden take their widgets in a big way. And and Willie Stargell says, I smoke widgets, or I wear widgets, whatever it is. And the Queen of England likes it, and so forth and so on. The a big increase in the man for widgets. So what you have, then, is a increase to the man curve upward. Uh, the man curve shifts to, uh, the dotted line here, B prime. <coughs> which means that at any given price, more of the widgets will be purchased than before, because everybody wants more widgets now. The value scales have a higher, of most people, or all people have a higher ranking for widgets than they have before. So this means that initially, in other words, when a big initial push comes for widget demand, uh, there's only this million widgets around, or a million cases, or whatever they're sold in, uh, and the price suddenly goes up. Because of the old price, uh, as you remember, remember from the <coughs> Market quote mechanism unquote, uh, which the old price cleared the market before. Now we suddenly find a situation where at the old price, the the demand is much greater than supply because now the demand curve is shifted upward and to the right. So all of a sudden a shortage of widgets develops at the old price. Widgets leave the shelves very quickly and and, and the sellers and businessmen raise the price. And as the price of widgets goes up, the shortage is eliminated. And finally, we get the new equilibrium price. The E2. Okay, that's what we, what we mentioned last week, where <coughs> excuse me, increase in demand will give us initial push and we'll, uh, uh, people will evaluate the widgets more highly and therefore the price will go up. The next step, so that's phase one, so to speak, of the, of the widget price question. The next step is what happens now? On well, some things, of course, nothing happens now. And in, in, in products where there's only where you can't have any increase in supply because because all uh, of the all the possible supply was produced 100 years ago or so. For example, Rembrandt. It's impossible to increase the supply of Rembrandt unless you're a very, very good forger, and the forger remains undetected forever. Barring that, supply of Rembrandt will remain forever the same. Remember, the supply curve will be fixed. <coughs> And the only possible way to go is to go downward if, you know, some Rembrandt, uh, gets lost or something like that. So in the case of Rembrandt, there'll be an increase in demand for Rembrandt, uh, increase in the price of Rembrandt, and that'll be it. And Rembrandt will then be allocated again to their most valued holders, so to speak. Those will be willing to pay more, more for, for them. Uh, so in the case of Rembrandt, there's not, not much more you can do. Uh, and you just say that this is a supply line for Rembrandt, and that's the end of it. But in the case of any product which can be increased in production, such as widgets, then the widget manufacturers, uh, start getting very busy. They all of a sudden see an increase in demand for widgets. They say, oh boy, yippee, well, widgets are here again, and so forth. And they start increasing, they start tooling up and increasing the supply of widgets. Now, how long this will take depends on the data of the individual product. <coughs> uh, For example, in the the late unlamented meat shortage this spring, one of the problems there was it takes a couple of years to to, uh, increase the supply of beef because cows, the production process for cows takes a couple of years, whereas for chickens, it only takes a few months. So This is a technological production process. (coughs) So in the case of widgets, whether it's a couple of months or a couple of years, depending on the situation, uh, new manufacturers enter the widgets field, old manufacturers Expand their production, uh, repair their lucky locks and go into business and so forth. And over the years then, or over the months, we begin to have a shift in the supply lines, the vertical supply line of widgets, rightward. So after a few months, we may have this much, and after some more months, that much, <coughs> and so forth. So, let us say that after a couple of years, we now have, uh, this, uh, say SF, final supply, well, presumptuous us say, final supply line. We now have the current situation. The phase after phase two, in other words, after the uh, supply has increased and in, uh, in response to the great increase in widget demand, we now have a new equilibrium point E3, which is the intersection of the new demand curve D prime with the final vertical supply line. In other words, <coughs> after a few years, uh, after widget prices. After widget manufacturers retool to enter the widget business once more, uh, we have an increase in the supply of widgets and response to the increase in demand. So in this way, demand is able to call forth its own supply, so to speak. Uh, in response to the incentives due to the higher prices, uh, businessmen expand their production of this particular product, and the price then falls back from E2 onto some intermediate point E3. The further sloping supply curve with which we're most of us familiar. Takes the locus of all these changes, all these responses of supply, and uh, connects them all together in the same with our famous supply curve, S, uh, SL, I think, in the long run. Uh, in other words, what no, we're dealing here with, the forward supply curve, the long run supply curve, which answers a very different question than the demand curve. The man curve says, uh, how much of any, of any particular product will, the con, will consumers buy at any given time? The demand curve freezes the, freezes the market at any, like a, a freeze shot uh, in the movies, uh, at any given moment. And at that moment, how much will be bought in given hypothetical prices? So the demand curve is, instant, is instantaneous. <clears throat> it's a snapshot kind of figure. Whereas the supply curve, the forward-looking supply curve, is really a long-run curve incorporating time within it, uh, which says uh, how much, how many widgets will be produced, will be called forth on the market, given this particular price. And we're given a very low price, we only have a few widgets being produced. Given a higher price, more widgets will be produced. Given a very high price, enormous amount of widgets will be produced, and so forth. So what we have is a supply curve. It's something which really technically should not be on the same graph as the demand curve because what it tells us is it incorporates time within it, and it says, given time for adjustment, given time for response, given time for the widget manufacturers to either get out of the industry if the prices are too low or get in if prices are high, this is how much uh, production will be called forth. But it's still very, even though it's technically incorrect, it's still interesting to contemplate it because it's a valid way of looking at the situation because it shows that. Uh, how supply responds to the changes in demand. And similarly, of course, if demand fools, people get sick of widgets. If Queen Elizabeth or Willie Stargill says, you know, announce the fact that they hate widgets now, and the, the demand curve for widgets drops, we have the exact opposite situation. but have a sudden drop in prices, <coughs> followed by people getting out of the widget industry, and winding up with a, uh, uh prices going back to some extent, and and winding up with just a few widget manufacturers it's like the horse and buggy manufacturer there's still a few horse and buggy manufacturers left but obviously it's way way less than the heyday of the old you know the pre-automobile heyday of the buggy industry so um so in this way consumers by their changes in demand are able to reader to direct and redirect product factors of production land labor capital investments uh energy and so forth direct and redirect them into those areas where consumers would like want Uh, products, where the demand uh, is most urgent or highest, such as say widgets, and out of those areas where the consumers no longer wish to buy stuff such as, whatever, hula hoops. (coughs) And and so uh, this way, consumers are able to direct production uh, out of those areas which they're not particularly interested in, into those areas where they are interested, where they they do want to acquire as much product as they can. Uh, In the case of in case of, uh, example, uh, beef and pork, which we'll get, get to in a minute again, uh, beef is notoriously income elastic. In other words, as people get more affluent, as people get more affluent, the demand for beef relatively increases, and as people get more affluent, the demand for pork relatively declines. They might want to still want to have more pork, but the proportion of income they want to spend on pork tends to fall. There's a, there's a shift from pork and into beef, uh, the result of which is, is again, uh, in the long run, resources are shifted. Farmers begin to shift their resources from pigs and into cows in response to this, to this general change. Uh, and this is why we say that, that consumers really direct production. Consumers are really in charge uh, of production rather than the entrepreneurs. Who looks as if superficially in the, in the short run are in charge. Consumers <clears throat> have to pay for the product. Uh, so, if, if for example, if this, if this vertical supply line represents a, a current codfish catch and the fish are down there on the dock and uh, they're, they're sold fairly quickly, et cetera, if the price of the demand for codfish goes up, and next year the fishermen will go out and they'll shift more into codfish and out of other fish or out of other things. And so the next season or two seasons later, bring in more codfish as as demonstrated by a shift in supply curve and then we'll have an increase a permanent increase in the quantity of codfish and a drop back to the somewhere in the middle of the price structure uh well let's see what we can do let's see the sort of thing what economists how economists can kind of predict or explain a given price um for example we can we can Predict what's going to happen on the auction market. We can't make a quantitative prediction. We can't make a qualitative prediction. This is this I think is indicative of what axiology, so to speak, can say of the auction market. On the auction market, we have a supply curve of one. Supply, supply line say of one. In the case of Rembrandt or Chippendales, I mean, that's it. There's no way of increasing it. Aside from the question of increasing it, we have a supply line of one. And we can say that the price of the auction will be set at the, at the Park, Bernard galleries, or wherever. Uh, somewhere slightly above the maximum buying price of the second highest valuer. That's what we can say. Uh, so that if if Rockefeller and Vanderbilt are bidding for, for the next Rembrandt and Rockefeller, we get down to, we start with 100 bidders and we work our way up, we have, we all drop out of the demand curve and we're left with Rockefeller and Vanderbilt. <coughs> and Rockefeller is able to outbid Vanderbilt. In that case, Rockefeller will be Bidding will be paying just a little bit higher than the highest price of Annabelle is going to pay. That's what we can say. And we, it's not, uh, in one sense, it's not very much. From that basis, we can't predict tomorrow's auction market. On the other hand, we can say something. That's what, that's, that's what we can say. We can, we can analyze uh, on the basis price, on the basis of supply line and, and value scale. <clears throat> uh, there is a, another area, another uh, room for supply. The supply for forward sloping supply curves, I don't want to get into too much. But just to mention, uh, and that's speculation. The influence of speculation in markets where we can have speculation, you can't always have speculation, obviously. You're not going you, to usually have speculation, say, in the Wheaties market. Because the like, speculation is usually on commodities, which are not brand names, which are uh, certain fixed properties, and so forth and so on. Uh, in markets where you do have speculation, you have a the influence of speculation is to enormously speed up the, the adjustment process, toward equilibrium, so that instead of having the a demand curve, a regular falling demand curve on, say, a vertical supply line, you'll have a, a very flat curve, both demand and supply, because since the speculator is usually a pretty astute in knowing what's going, what's going to happen, not, not perfect, but they can usually fairly well guess where the intersection point is going to be, but then if the price is, uh, is, is considerably below, if they... Where they think it's going to be they're going to buy a lot of it and sell very little of it because they expect the price to go up and in this, this way they're going to have very, going to have a big gap between demand and supply, a big shortage so to speak and the price will scoot up very quickly. on the other hand <coughs> the price is the, but they think it's going to be equilibrium price. they're going to sell a lot of it and they're going to buy very little as a result of that, it's going to be a big surplus in the and the uh, price is going to scoop back down equilibrium very quickly. So the result of speculation, even though it's a very malign occupation, usually, <coughs> most people don't understand, don't understand the economic function of speculation. But the economic function of speculation is to speed up the adjustment process <coughs> on the market to equilibrium level. <coughs> Those pe- speculators get caught who guess incorrectly, of course, lose out, find, find themselves in unsold stocks, etc. And so the result of this is to and uh, those people who allow these speculators uh, drop out of the market, and those people who are good speculators continue on. And the tendency then is to have sort of crackerjack speculators doing very well in adjusting the price system. <clears throat> uh, also, speculators who do things like buying, in a, uh, buying when something is in, uh, in a relative abundance, when a commodity is in relative abundance now, holding it until it's going to be in short supply later. Uh, and say in, some, say in the strawberry season or something like that, holding until it's out of season and then selling it uh, at that point. By doing this, the speculator has to smooth out the fluctuation of, of prices by you know, raising the price during the abundant, relatively abundant season and lowering it during the relatively scarce season, and then by shifting the supply to where the consumers more demand it. In other words, the consumer more anxious to get it, say, during the uh, out of season. So the speculator holds on to it and then sells it at that, that point. That smooths out the process there. So the speculators perform a very important function. <clears throat> okay. Uh, there are various types. This, this is essentially the economics of the individual price, uh, both in the immediate run for the vertical supply line and the longer run uh, as the forward-sloping supply curve takes into account cattle the various adjustments. We now get to the question of the relationships between prices, between different products. The first place is a general relationship between all prices, that all goods are competing for the consumer dollar. In that sense, all goods compete with each other, and all goods are substitutes uh, in a way for each other. <coughs> um, and we can say that there's a man for hula hoops. For one thing, we can say something I think I mentioned last time, is when the man for hula hoops goes up, the demand for something else has got to drop because there's, it means you're, you're, you're paying more, well, you're buying more hula hoops or more widgets. It means you're spending more money on, the, on this product. This means that somehow you have to offset that by spending less money on something else because your consumer income is considered given. Uh, <clears throat> so that's one, one way in which all the products are interrelated uh, on the market. But let's get uh, a little closer, a little closer relationships than just, than this just general competition for the consumer dollar. Basically, there are two kinds, substitutes and complements. Uh, substitutes are close substitutes in this case, not just the competition for the consumer dollar, but uh, beef and pork, uh, butter and margarine, close substitutes. Uh, we saw the influence of on, on close substitutes in the late, late unlamented meat shortage. When beef was uh, extremely scarce, the price of beef was going way up in response to the scarcity, and people began to shift two substitutes for beef, lamb, uh, lamb, chicken, uh, soybeans, or whatever. So, the, so all these things began to go up in demand in response to the uh, increased scarcity of the of, you know, substitute product. So then we began to see the important relationships between them. Uh, OK, with substitute products, there are two kinds of uh, interrelationships, one if the demand of one changes and the other if the supply of one changes. If the demand changes relatively to the others, there's no problem. It's very easy to see what happens. For example, the beef lamb uh, case that I mentioned before, beef pork case. If, uh, as people get more affluent, usually the demand for beef goes up and the demand for pork drops. And then what simply happens is that the price of beef tends to go up, the quantity tends to go up as the resources shift into it, and the price of pork tends to fall and the quantity of resources devoted to pork tends to fall. So it's very simple. If you have a shift on the value scale, uh, from pork to beef. Demand changes respond reflect that and price changes and quantity changes in the long run reflect that also. So that that's simple. The, compl- the more complicated rela- relationships and the substitute field are in the cases of changes in supply. For example, uh, beef pork. <coughs> this is figure three. Uh, here we have two, two substitute uh, supply and demand Curves, say beef and pork. Now we're dealing with, with the forward-sloping supply curve because we're figuring it's a long run, allowing some time for relationships to change. And here's the say beef and pork. Uh, now let's say we have our uh, late unlamented meat shortage, and supply curve of beef shifts radically to the left. Why it shifts to the left is another story, which we get to. could be, in the case of, a, of a, our beef shortage this year, is because the government messed everything up. It could also be, are you know, other possible reasons, <laughs> uh, a beef, you know, the hoof and mouth disease strikes the middle of the West, or whatever. So the big shift in the supply curve of uh, beef to the left. In that case, of course, the, the quantity of beef sold drops, and the, the price goes up. In response to that, since beef is now scarcer and more expensive, people shift. The demand for pork now goes increases. In other words, the demand curve for pork shifts to the right. So the demand for, the demand curve for pork can be in response to either, uh, the values for pork shifting, uh, in relation to beef relation to anything else, or in response to the substitute relationship of price. The fact that the beef prices are getting either cheaper or more expensive. If beef, beef prices are getting more expensive, then, uh, the demand curve for pork will tend to go up, as we saw happen. And the result of this will be eventually an uh, increase in the pork price and an increase in the quantity of pork. And so we wind up, <coughs> after all this happens, with uh, both beef prices and pork prices going up. And the eventual result of all this, the difference being that beef, the resources devoted to beef are going down, supply of beef is going down, and the supply of pork is going up because more resources are shipped into the pork area. But uh, the quantity here uh, doesn't have to be the same, doesn't have to be the same price increase. It all depends on the, on the flatness or steepness or elasticity, as it's called, of, of these, two, these four curves. Uh, <clears throat> so, and, and, and the same thing happens incidentally, with lamb and chicken, et cetera, and, and soybeans, anybody eats soybeans, uh, in, in the 1973 shortage. The tendency is for all these things Demand curves to go up in response to the higher price of the, of the other substitute. If, on the other hand, and usually, as usually happens in the market, as things get cheaper, as productivity increases and new hormones are discovered or whatever, in that case, the opposite happens. Supply of beef shifts to the right. The price of beef gets cheaper. As the price of beef gets cheaper, it becomes more competitive than pork. Demand curve for pork shifts to the left, declines, in other words. The price of pork declines to meet it, but the result is a shift of resources out of pork and into beef. Or out of lamb and into beef. So, uh, (coughs) so the result, the resulting price change is about similar, but the thing is the impetus is very different. Here you have the impetus coming from the change in supply, and there you have a necessity to meet the competitive uh, price of the other, of the substitute. well, oh, OK, that's the beef, pork, and substitute paper. The sometimes, unfortunately, uh, different producers try to get the government to change the, the rules of the game, so to speak. In other words, the, of the substitutes don't show up or are crippled. For example, for many, many years, the butter industry was trying to keep margarine, which is, of course, a big substitute for butter, trying to hobble the production of margarine, sale of margarine. And they t- had laws passed outlawing the, the, yellow, the coloring of margarine yellow because margarine was originally stocked white or something, and people didn't like it. I mean, they were used to the idea of spreading yellow on bread. <laughs> so uh, this, this, this is a big deterrent. For people didn't buy, uh, didn't buy margarine for many years because it looked icky. It looked icky because the butter interest had you know passed the law preventing them from coloring yellow. Finally, after a titanic struggle by the margarine interests against the butter interest, the margarine interests were finally allowed to color the margarine yellow in the rest of its history. I mean, you know, people, margarine is everywhere now. But it took many years... To break margarine through this this, this uh, political barrier. Um, okay that's that's substitutes. <laughs> uh, the uh, the other big relationship between products is there, there, there are substitutes, and there are lots of substitutes all over as you can imagine. You're just uh, all over the place, uh, also in production as well as the consumption, aluminum and steel, let's say. Substitute for each other, partially at least, and then producing a lot of things. Uh, So there are substitutes, which are related in this way. There are also also complements. Complements with an E, that is. Uh, Complements meaning products that go together in some way. There are two types of complementary products, each of which are completely different. Uh, One of the products in joint demand, the other products in joint supply. They're completely different. Uh, Joint demand product there's a product which goes together. In other words, one or two or three or four, two or three or four, let's say, products that for some reason are demanded together, They go together in in, in, in consumption. And this can be uh, for example, bread and butter, is an excellent example. Usually even if you have an increase in the demand for sandwiches, then both bread and butter are demanded together. It's not that's not an absolute correlation because there's also mayonnaise and stuff. But basically there's a certain there's a certain high correlation there between uh demand for bread and demand for butter. Also, for example, when a, when a whole activity has increased in demand, for example, there's an increase in demand for baseball. It means there's an increase in demand for baseball gloves, bats, ball boys, uh, umpire services, stadia, the whole the whole business. There's an enormous uh, series of complementary goods that go together with the whole baseball package. Uh, <clears throat> so these are, these are products in joint demand. Now, again, it's easy to see the relationship on the demand side. I mean, if the, the demand for baseball goes up, and the demand curve for baseball, for baseball gloves, for bats, for ball boys, for, for pitchers, all, all these things, the demand for all these almost infinite number of things, not infinite, but n, n number of things goes up. And the price will tend to go up, and the quantity will tend to go up. <coughs> um, Contrarily, contra, uh, the demand for the whole thing falls. For example, bowling was in great disrepute for many years before the big post-war comeback. And so the demand for bowling fell. fell, the demand for pinboys fell, the demand for bowling equipment and bulls and alleys and all the rest of it. And the, the demand fell. And the impact of this fall or rise, depends on the, on the steepness, so to speak, of the, of the different supply curves, which we'll get to later. <coughs> but um, so it's easy to see what well, the, the impact of changes on the demand side for, for joint demand products. The tricky thing, or the complicated thing, comes in changes the, the supply side. For example, let's take bread and butter. This is, this is figure four, uh, <clears throat> price on the y-axis, quantity on the x-axis. Now we have bread and butter. And uh, I'm supposing there's a big increase in the supply of butter for some
1: reason. There's, uh,
0: there's a big uh, increase in butter produ- productivity, some, some new invention, some new way of uh, producing butter, which causes an enormous increase in supply. So we have a big increase in supply curve of butter. And the price of butter then falls starkly. What then happens on the, what's the influence on the price of the mass for bread? Well, the influence is all, not only is butter cheaper, but now sandwiches are cheaper. So sandwiches are cheaper. This will induce people to buy more bread because they want to buy more sandwiches. The result is an increase in the demand curve for bread, B prime. So, so this means that the demand curve for bread is induced by what, by what happens in supply, changes in demand curve for bread are induced by what happens in changes in supply of its complement, its joint demand complement. Uh, in this case, butter is much cheaper. This means that there would be a big increase in demand for bread. This means that bread becomes more expensive. as More people eat sandwiches. Supply, the quantity produced and so the butter increases. The quantity produced of produce solar bread increases. More people will wind be eating sandwiches, but the net result of this whole business is the price of butter falls, the price of bread goes up. But there's nothing that's happening to the supply of bread. There's no, been no increase in bread productivity or technology or anything. Bread is still poking along the same way it had been before. And all that happens now is an increase in demand for bread, so you're going up the given supply curve, and you get this kind of a relationship. And again, vice versa. If there's a, if there's a big, uh, Cow shortage for some reason is a big, you know, dairy, dairy cattle are struck by the dread brucellosis disease or something, and half of dairy cattle were wiped out. Supply curve of butter shifts to the left, butter becomes more expensive, and people then cut down on their purchase of sandwiches. As they do that, the demand curve for bread drops, and the price of bread will fall. That's the, you know, the other side of the coin of the butter bread relationship. So, <clears throat> that's the joint demand paper. And, uh, I think mean, again it's easy to see once the, once it's pointed out what the relationships are uh, between co- products and joint demand. Uh, and if changes in the supply side will then be down, see what, the result will be an opposite change, you know, demand for, demand for the other, uh, complement. And the same thing would happen in, in say, in baseball, but there the, the effect is quantitatively so small it becomes a little bit ludicrous, but it's still so there. I mean, for example, if there's a tremendous increase in bat productivity, the bat making, I don't know how they make bats, but presumably there's some machine that does it. There's a big increase in bat productivity, and bats become much cheaper. The supply, supply curve for bats shifts to the right. There's a big drop in the supply and the price of bats. This induces more people to play baseball, and the man curves to all the other things goes up. It's, I mean, the effect is, obviously, so small. because The price of bats doesn't mean much in the whole baseball picture. So the, there would just be a teeny increase in the man curve of these other things, for uniforms, ball boys, and so on and so on. But qualitatively, the effect will be there. Since economics is a qualitative discipline, qualitative science, so to speak. We should mention that. Uh, <clears throat> OK, this is the joint demand situation. Uh, and joint demand, by the way, also, of course, applies to factors of production. When, when, when widgets are produced or beef is produced or whatever, there are all sorts of factors of production, different types of labor, capital, land, et cetera. Are jointly demanded to produce this thing and that this so a lot of the joint demand analysis could apply there too. If the increase of demand for steel, the increase of demand curves also for steel producers, steel steel equipment, raw steel, steel factories, the whole business, steel workers, and so on and so on. So all these things are demanded together. Okay, next, next is joint supply. <coughs> uh, joint supply is very different than joint demand. Joint supply is when Two products or more products, two or more products, are produced. Uh, joint demand is a situation where they're produced on, for the same market, you know, the baseball market, the sandwich market, or whatever. Joint supply is two things which are having no completely different markets. They're just that they're technologically wrapped up together. There's no way to get around that. Uh in other words, joint supply is a purely technological question. Uh, for example, uh right now in the silver mine, especially in silver mine in the United States. Silver and copper are wrapped up together. So when you're mining more silver, you're also mining more copper and vice versa. Well, this means that you have a uh, peculiar kind of uh, market relationship. Um, again, in the, case of, in the case of joint supply, it's very easy to see what happens when there's a change. This time it's supply of something. In other words, the people that the silver-copper miners go down to Nevada or Colorado know, and mine more silver and copper. It's uh, easy to see what happens and the supply curve of silver will increase, the price of silver will fall and the supply curve of copper will increase and the price of copper will fall, and that'll be it. In other words, it'll be a uh, supply curve in both markets will increase. So the, again, the, here the, the complicated question comes, so what happens when the demand curve for one of these things goes up? For example, say this is, uh, say this is copper and silver. Actually, the famous case is, is beef and hide. It was a, you know, the, the, the cow, the, the meat, meat goes to the beef market, and the hides go to the leather market. And the two completely different markets. There's no relationship between the leather and the beef market. It just so happens it's the same thing that supplies it. So uh, let's say you have the man and supply curves again for the two, uh, <coughs> figure four, two joint supply items, whether it's copper, silver, or beef and hides. So let's, say a big, let's, let's take beef and hogs, because it's more spectacular difference there. Uh, copper and silver, they're both mining material. Uh, let's say there's a big increase in the for beef, because there often is. OK, so the demand for beef goes up. And in response to this, and the price of beef goes up, goes up in response to this, the long run supply for the quantity of beef increases. So we have this shift sure, from one equal room point to another. OK, that's fine. But what ha- what happens here is, in response to producing more cattle and getting more cows on the market and, and, res- and responding to an increase in beef production, the result of this is a willy-nilly, in despite the best efforts of the producers, more hides come on the market, more leather comes on the market. The result of this is a big increase in supply curve of leather. In other words, the increase in quantity responding to an increase in demand curve for beef, willy-nilly suppresses the, the leather market, or, you know, leads to a full supply of leather. A leather people might gnash their teeth or whatever, there's not that much they can do about it. So this is so again we see sort of an opposite situation here, the increase in demand evoking uh, greater uh, supply, which in turn uh increases the supply curve of a complement, a joint supply complement, which lowers the price of that complement. That's the same way with copper and silver, just in here there's a more dramatic uh, difference. Uh, Again, contrary-wise, there's a drop-in demand for beef. And (coughs) the result of this is price of beef falls and less cattle being produced. The result of that would be an increase in supply curve, I mean, excuse me, a fall in supply curve in the leather industry, and a shift of leather prices upward because of this joint supply kind of situation. Uh, Okay, that's the joint supply business. Um, Again, in the case of joint supply, there are attempts Sometimes successful businesses to create their own demand for the joint supply for the, for the byproducts, in quotes. Uh, byproducts are often waste, uh, wasted resources, which go, uh, have no use, which are no use for, but have to be produced as part of the regular production. The uh, famous case, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is a case of, of, of fluoridation of the water supply. Uh, I, uh, economists tend to be, I wouldn't say cynics, but some, some people would say cynics, other people would say realists, and analyzing government action. We tend to look for the economic motive involved, and we tend to check if the economic motive is consistent with what happened, and also with the lobbying activity. We tend to say, well, you know, it seems to be a pretty good case here. Now, this is true in the case of fluoridation. Uh, setting aside all the arguments, the health arguments, both for and against fluoridation. Uh, in case of fluoridation, we had a, uh, uh, an unwanted byproduct of aluminum production. Um, aluminum, uh, aluminum production also produces along with it uh, uh, sodium fluoride, unwanted, uh, un- unwept and unsung, which was originally dumped, you know, wherever, wherever p- industries dump their wastes. Uh, then the fluoridation movement comes in, and lo and behold, we have a happy, happy byproduct, a happy increase in demand for the joint supplied waste product, sodium fluoride. Which now gets dumped, which now gets purchased from Alcoa. It gets dumped in everybody's water supply continually. It's a, it's a continuing market. It might not seem so much, but it's, it's a steady thing because I mean, people are always drinking water and always dumping the stuff in the water supply. Okay, now looking at this, The economists looking at this situation will tend to at least hypothesize that maybe there's a certain relationship between this, the, the end for fluoridation, which suddenly appeared upon us in the late 40s uh, and early 50s. And alcohol is a need for, uh, for, extra bo- for extra demand for its uh, formerly waste product. Uh, and also, and I don't want to get into technical, because I'm, I'm sure people here know more about chemistry than I do, but the, there's also a peculiar thing that, the, that uh, the, uh, those areas where where water supply is naturally fluoridated, where the kids have less cavities. These are areas where calcium fluoride is discovered in the water, not sodium fluoride. Another question arises, why isn't calcium fluoride dumped in? Well, first of all, maybe calcium is the thing that stops the cavities, not the fluorine. But at any rate, why isn't calcium fluoride dumped in the water instead of sodium fluoride? And perhaps the answer is because calcium fluoride ain't no byproduct of aluminum <coughs> production. Getting to the punchline of this, the guy who really pushed this whole thing, pushed fluoridation very heavily, was, the first, was I believe, the first secretary of health, education, and welfare in the Truman administration, Mr. Oscar Ewing, who was known as a great progressive and... Leader of the Americans for Democratic Action, and so forth. Uh, after pushing fluoridation, getting the whole thing launched, and getting all the medical profession, public health profession behind it, et cetera, he then left the government to return to his law practice, which also happened to be uh, chief counsel, of, partially chief counsel of the Lumina Corporation of America. Now, there we have it. There's the wrap, wrap up.
1: <laughs> now,
0: you <either> this is. <coughs> Depending on your general philosophy and point of view, either this is a computer coincidence
1: <laughs>
0: or else we look you know, we tend to look more with a joinest eye on this, uh, this so called public welfare operation. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's the Alcoa caper.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um the one uh, free market economists are accused of being apologists for big business. I think it's, I think we're only apologizing for big business and their activities on the market, not their activities in government, where uh, a completely different set of rules and consequences follow. Uh, before I touch on the more of the demand curve and supply curve analysis, I should say something about the benefits of exchange. I should have mentioned before. Uh, the exchange system is a, is a system where both parties to each exchange benefit. Actually, the, the free market economy, even though it looks to be very complex in the sense it is, it uh, consists of millions of participants, literally. It's it it's really a network or a lattice work of unit exchanges of two people, or two groups, or two parties. So when I buy my newspaper for 15 cents, uh, I'm and there's me and the newspaper dealer, or if somebody works for a corporation, it's him and a corporation who are dickering for their sur- for services. Uh, so what you have is a, is a whole network of, unit, of these unit exchanges. In each, ca- in each case, in each unit, both parties to the exchange think that they're better off by making the exchange. In other words, uh, when I buy a newspaper for 15 cents, I value the newspaper more highly than I value 15 cents. On my value scale, the New York Times say, is higher, greater than 15 cents. On the other hand, a news dealer who has plenty of New York Times. is up to up to here in New York Times. is 15 cents obviously worth more to him than the New York Times. So we have uh, a double inequality of, of values, a reverse inequality of values, which sets up the conditions for exchange. <clears throat> Peculiarly enough, a lot of classical economists, including, uh, especially Karl Marx, uh, looked at the exchange system, looked at prices, and said, aha, uh-huh, because, let's say, a newspaper is 15 cents or whatever, therefore, there must be some sort of equality of value between a newspaper and 15 cents, or, or between a newspaper and some other thing that costs 15 cents. And he looked around for what is the thing which makes these two, two things equal in value. Is it weight? No, obviously it isn't. A uh, newspaper doesn't weigh as much as half a loaf of bread or whatever. Or is it volume, couldn't be that. And he finally wound up with a crazy labor hours uh, doctrine. But, but the problem was very, very, really the beginning of his questions, of his analysis, which is there must be something equal in value between two things which have the same price. Because the whole point of exchanges is nobody would exchange them at all unless they were unequal in value. If I really, if to me, the $0.15 cents was exactly equal in value with a newspaper, I wouldn't bother buying a newspaper because it's, you know, it's a certain costliness. Certain costs involved in buying a newspaper and going there and shopping there, etc. Uh, similarly, no, so no, no exchanges would ever take place at all if everything was equal in value. The whole point, also, if a news, news dealer preferred the, the time for 15 cents for some reason, there'd be no, there'd be no basis for exchange either. There has to be a reverse inequality. It has to be a situation where both of us have a reverse value scale for the product. So because of this, because of these reverse uh, value scales, uh, they have exchanges all over the place where those who have sur- where Crusoe with a surplus fish or whatever exchanges with a Friday surplus lumber and so forth and so on all the way down the line. <coughs> uh, okay, proceeding on with the demand supply curve etc. There's one famous property and I think it's important uh, which the demand curves and supply curves both have uh, which is important in analyzing them. Look at, look at it very simplistically, it can be called a flatness or steepness. In other words, if, if if a curve is, if the supply curve, say, is very steep, and the demand curve increases, then you have a very hot, huge increase in price and a very small increase in quantity. In the case of Rembrandt, you have no increase in quantity. On the other hand, supply curve is quite flat, say nails. we can produce a lot more nails very quickly. Uh, then a given increase in demand will can cause a small increase in pricing and a large increase in quantity. So the flatness or the steepness of the manner supply curve is uh, evidence of, of how you know will there, how much of the reaction takes place and will take place in the quantity area and how much will take place in the price area. Now um, so the usual definition, the textbook definition, of this is called elasticity, it's as relative well as flatness, by the way. Of course, one very important point is that it depends, you can't just say flat or steep, because that, it depends also on what the scale is here, the, the, the ordinal scale. Uh, you have to have a given scale before you can talk about relative flatness. But at any rate, this relative flatness is called elasticity. The term elasticity, once again, is a feeble attempt at aping physics, uh, where, the, where economics, probably, e- e- economics is filled with jargon it's something that ate the physical sciences. The elasticity sounds like, you know, you're, 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 extending the spring and how much of the spring jump back. Was, the, the tendency is always to leave human action out of the picture. <laughs> leave people out of the picture talking about springs and, and, uh, and weights and stuff like that. So it's illegitimate, but it's uh, used anyway. So I can, with that caveat, keep using it. Um, my usual textbook definition of elasticity is, uh, Percentage change in quantity divided by a percentage change in price. In other words, if the, if the quantity changes a great deal in relation to change of price, then it's a very elast- elastic. If, it ch- if the quantity changes a, uh, a small amount in relation to change of price, then it's very inelastic. Now, I personally don't like this definition, because I don't think, well, for various reasons. For one thing, uh, which is something we have to repeat again and again in this course or any other economic lectures, is that nobody knows what the elasticity is. What you have, what you begin to have, as you're playing around with these curves, the curves take on a fascination of their own, take on a life of their own. People actually begin to think that the curves are there, and everybody knows what they are, and they start trying to measure them. You can't measure them because nobody knows what they are. One, nobody knows what they are, and two, they keep changing all the time. So that there's uh, you can't you can't really measure them. You can try to approximate, try to figure out how elastic is the demand curve for sugar and that sort of stuff. And a so lot a lot of, a lot of Time and energy and resources and journal articles have been wasted on that sort of stuff. People come up, here's the demand curve for cotton. It's impossible to figure out what the man curve for cotton is because the man curve is instantaneous, the man curve, and it keeps changing all the time. The, the, the so-called measurement always assumes that the man curve stays the same for about 20 years. And then if it stays the same, then you can plot the various production points on the so-called man curve, and which gives you the man curve. It's a pure nonsense because the macro keeps changing. The, the whole basis is it. all a subjective valuation of people, and these subjective valuations keep changing. So nobody knows what they are. Nobody can measure them. And therefore, using, start using percentages, and percentage changes gives a spurious precision to the whole thing, which it really doesn't deserve. This the, you know the public. But second of all, it, it, another thing this definition of elasticity does, it doesn't focus on what I, I, I maintain as an important problem of elasticity because it makes the supply curve and the demand curve similar. In other words, it, it looks at the steepness or flatness of both. Whereas the demand curve elasticity is a much more important question than the supply curve elasticity, and it's a very different question. See, the supply curve, uh, quantity and price are always moving together. In other words, if the quantity at a low point of supply curve, the forward sloping supply curve, price is low and quantity is low, and up here, Price is high and quantity is high. So the two things are always moving in the same direction. But with the demand curve, it's completely different. The two things are always moving in the opposite direction. When price falls and quantity demanded increases, and vice versa. So here, with the demand curve, you have a very important kind of question, which is that the area under the demand curve keeps changing in and, and response to these two forces moving in the opposite direction. Uh, and this area tends to be very important because that's the total revenue that a business or industry gets. Extremely important to a firm or an industry to figure out whether a price change will cause a drop in revenue or, or an increase in revenue. For example, uh, here's a well, let's say we have a column. Okay, this is widgets. Uh, price of widgets, quantity of widgets, and if the price of widgets is $10 a case. Uh, quantity of widgets say is a thousand, people will sell a thousand. The price drops to nine dollars a case. Let's say they, well, they'll sell more. We don't know how much more. Let's say eleven 1, hundred. Let's say twelve
1: hundred.
0: All right, in that case, the total revenue is equal to the price times the quantity. Obviously, if you if you're selling a thousand widgets, a thousand cases of widgets for ten dollars a widget, your total income or total revenue would be ten thousand dollars. Uh in this case, If you're selling uh, $1,200 at $9, then it's uh, $1,800 total revenue. All right, so in this case, you have a situation where the price is falling and the quantity is increasing. The quantity is increasing more than the price is falling proportionally, result of which is the total revenue is going up. In other words, the area under the curves, uh, price and quantity, price and quantity. The area of the lower prices is larger than the area of higher prices. Okay, well, this is important for a businessman to know this. If he can estimate it, it's important to figure out what's going to happen when the price falls. On the other hand, if the price can fall, say, to $9. Instead of going up to 1000 or to 1200 the it maybe goes up only to 1050 the Only The quantity increases only a little bit. In that case, the total revenue would be nine
1: thousand
0: four hundred and fifty right okay uh so the total revenue has now dropped from ten thousand to nine thousand four hundred and fifty with a fall in price so here you have a situation where the area is less the total demand curve is steeper, and the result of the fallen uh, price is a drop in total revenue so the so the thing is, it's not just sort of a playing around with measurements here. The problem, the question is, what happens to total revenue if the price changes? In the former case, I call this elastic, where the price, so the definition of an elastic demand curve, in my view, is when, when the price falls, total revenue goes up. On the other hand, if, if the price falls and total revenue declines, that is my definition of inelastic demand curve. So the difference point of this definition between an elastic demand curve and an inelastic demand curve centers around, not the percentages one way or the other, it centers around whether total revenue is going up or going down as the price falls. Uh, The uh, the point is that this is not not a, a given thing throughout the whole demand curve, Even if you, if you say, assuming we you know where the demand curve is, just because it's elastic or inelastic in one zone doesn't mean it's going to continue to be elastic or inelastic throughout the whole area. Uh, on the other, quite the contrary. It might well happen, but uh, as you keep raising the price, you're going to you know, wind up, probably, you're going to wind up with a much lower total revenue curve. Uh, the obverse of this, by the way, the, 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 the other side of the coin is saying that when, to, when total revenue when total revenue increases as price falls, that means you have an elastic demand curve. The other side of the coin of that is that when total revenue decreases as the price rises, you have an elastic demand curve. So, um, so an elastic demand curve, or elastic area of the demand curve, I should say, is when uh, total revenue increases as the price falls, or Uh, Total revenue decreases as the price rises, this is is the same thing, and inelastic demand curve is when total revenue decreases as the price falls, or total revenue increases as price rises. And even even with the most inelastic demand curve, you're, never, you're not gonna get a situation where you're gonna raise the, the, uh, the price indefinitely and still have an increase in total revenue. Obviously, you're gonna eventually wind up in an elastic zone, any demand curve. So the, even if everybody's a great Wheaties fan, when you, when you push the price of Wheaties up to $10 a box, you get up falling off of total revenue for Wheaties. Regardless of how inelastic the, the, the demand curve for Wheaties might be if it is indeed inelastic. <laughs> Now, this this, uh, this question of elasticity, you know, inelasticity, in is kind of extremely important for businessmen or industry to figure out what's going to happen when I change, when I lower the price or raise the price. What's going to happen to total income, total revenue, in this case? Um, now, for example, many disputes uh, we've had in, in New York City. Several taxi strikes in the last few years. Beginning to blend the, it's beginning to be a blur in my memory. But at any rate, <laughs> uh, in each of these cases. Usually the dispute between the taxi industry and Mayor Lindsay is revolved around the elasticity of the demand curve for taxis. Uh the, the taxi industry said we need a higher price and so forth and so on. And therefore we should have a 50% increase or 20% increase or whatever. And the Lindsay administration claimed that the man curve for taxis was, was elastic. The claim was, no, no, if you increase your price by 50% or 20%, you're gonna have a more than proportional dropping off of demand, so your total revenue will decline. That was essentially the, the Lindsay argument. And then it was fighting back and forth, and then they get the fare increase. Now, so far, the Lindsay administration has been incorrect. In other words, so far, we've had a, we've had a, we've been in an elastic, excuse me, inelastic demand zone. uh, So, as as the fare, the price is going up, total revenue is going up. Uh, However, the last time they had a taxi fare increase, which was a huge whopper, remember about 50%, we almost got, it was a beautiful and glorious thing to watch, we almost got to the point of elasticity. As many taxi drivers reported for many months that their, their income went down because they were, you know, they were, they were, they were dropped, the, the fare went up at 50%, but their, their uh, number of fares went down by 60% or whatever. So in other words, we were almost, we were sort of at the, at the critical point there of, uh, of elasticity. Uh, and uh, the, the interesting point here is that the government uh, or government regulated industry in this situation doesn't know what in blazes to do about it, will not know what in to do when they reach this gloriously elastic point. Now someday this will come, someday when they raise the subway fare to a dollar or ten dollars, whatever it's going to be, they're going to find out when they raise it that the, that the total revenue is going down. Uh, because the tendency of most, despite my thing about the Lindsay administration, the tendency of most Government agencies is to, is to assume that the magnitude curve is vertical. That's really their tendency, so they, if they want a 20% increase in revenue, they figure, all right, we'll raise the fare by 20%. And they tend not to think about the falling off in quantity. <clears throat> well, it has an enormous falling off in quantity, which I have the figures with me, falling off in quantity of subway fares in New York City since 1948 or whenever they, they changed the nickel fare. In uh, other oh. so words, the number of fares, even though the population has gone up since since some extent, anyway, since 1948, and the number, certainly in the metropolitan area, and income has gone up and inflation and all that. Despite that, the number of subway, subway rides has gone down considerably by many percent since 1948. And this is another thing people don't realize. They figure, well, people have to ride to work, and therefore there can't be any dropping off of subway fare. Not true. There's all sorts of ways you can ride less than the subway. You go shopping once a week instead of twice a week, or whatever, you cut down the number of movies outside the neighborhood. There's all sorts of subtle and, and marginal ways in which the public can cut down their subway consumption, and the result is a big whopping change in the number of fares. But so far, this drop in quantity has not, been, has not reached the elastic zone yet, but my prediction is that it will. Uh, as I say, some at some glorious day, we'll get to the situation where the, the, the fare goes up to a dollar a ride, and they're going to find out a, a drop in total revenue. Uh, and then what are they going to do? Interesting question. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the, uh, another, another peculiar uh, area of elasticity, uh, and, and which is pretty obvious, I think, among consumers, is movies in New York. As an old moviegoer in New York, uh, I've seen a situation develop where nowadays you go to, a, I'm not talking now, the, 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 the so-called art movies are doing very well, like mean, the, the Third Avenue movie, that sort of thing. But the good old neighborhood movies where you have 2,000 seats uh, and if we go in there on Saturday night or Friday night or whatever and five people are sitting there. <laughs> it's like a private showing. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> now, It would seem fairly obvious that at a, at a, at a, at a ticket of $3.350 and there are five people sitting in the theater, it would seem to the, to the movie exhibitor, maybe the thing to do is to cut the price. And, sh- and there have been some cases in the last couple of years when the price has been cut, say, to a dollar, a dollar fifty, and lo and behold, the theater is flooded. Obviously, two thousand people, a dollar and a half a ticket, and would know, be an enormous increase in revenue compared to, to you know, five people at three dollars a ticket. But it's an amazing thing how in movie exhibitors movie, uh, don't uh, seem to realize this. I mean, it's an elementary less than the elasticity of the man. But there, as I say, there have been certain cases in the neighborhood theaters adopted a policy of a dollar and a half or a dollar a seat, and bingo, the price is jammed, regardless of the quality of the movie. So that the, one would think, less of any of you who might own a movie theater in New York, cut the price. <laughs> uh, OK, we can begin to use this uh, supply and demand analysis, et cetera, to start looking at, at some case studies of, of kinds of prices, individual kinds of prices. Um, There is, for example, a question which is on the the minds and hearts of many people in the United States. Why is it that the medical and hospital prices are going up so fantastically? We know, of course, the prices have gone up in general. So we're dealing with a relative question of why prices of medical care are going enormously up, enormously greater increase than, than regular prices. Uh, and, the, again, the answer to this, and I'm not going to go an expert in the area, but the answer to this, this area can be found by analyzing both the demand side and the supply side. answer being, there have been various ways in which the demand curve has artificially increased for medical care, thereby, of course, jacking the price up. And there have been ways by which the, med- the supply of medical services have artificially sh- remained or shifted to the left, compared to what they could be or would be thereby raising the price of medical care that way. So we have an artificial increase in demand, an artificial restriction in supply, the result of an artificial huge increase in price of medical care. <coughs> um, well, for example, uh, it, it has been discovered, that the big increase in the, the big, when, when medical care really took off in strat- the stratosphere, uh, was, I think, the... Turn of 66, 67, when they have this big acceleration and rate of increase in prices, and before that, before 66, 67, was going up medical medical prices were going up considerably faster than the general cost of living, but that's not that stratospherically. Like. Incidentally, it almost boggles the mind to know that 20 years ago, when I first took out Blue Cross, uh, the, 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 the average hospital rate in New York City was $10 a day, and it's now something like 200. <laughs> It's somewhere in that area. Okay, so um, <coughs> the, uh, the, in 66, 67, there was an enormous shift, a uh, uh, breakthrough in the rate of, of increase. There was, um, for example, uh, from June 66 to June 67, uh, well, the cost of living was going up by 2.5% approximately that year. Medical care is going up by 10% as compared to 4.5% the previous year, with so a doubling of rate of increase. And hospital prices are going up by 25% in that year. So that seems to be a, 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 the critical point of critical mass, so to speak. And what happened? Did anything happen in 66? Yes, indeed something happened in 66, namely an enormous infusion of Medicare and Medicaid into the medical health picture. Uh, so what basically has happened, since, first of all, since World War II, we have the Blue Cross and Blue Shield, et cetera. And since 66, 67, we have an enormous increase in Medicare and Medicaid. The result of which, that was before World War II, almost nobody had medical insurance, maybe 10% or 5% of the population. Now almost everybody's got it. So now they don't let you into the hospital until they see your card, your medical insurance card. Well, the result of this situation is that since everybody, everybody's medical payment is being recouped, either, it's not 100%, something close to it. By the insurer, either Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or the government. And of course, the result of this has been an increase in the demand curve almost to the stratosphere. So the government then under, underwrites everybody's demand curve for medicine. And since the government underwrites everybody's demand curve for medicine, the result of this, as we should know by this time, is an enormous increase in the price. If, in other words, before, before 1945, people could only afford $100 for appendix operations is what they paid. If now they can afford anything that the government will recoup. $1,000 or something, then why not? Because the taxpayer picks up the tab, and so the doctor then charges $1,000 instead of 100 <clears throat> So this is, <clears throat> with us a fantastic increase in demand curve, with, 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 we have almost an unri- unlimited unru- underwriting of the consumer demand. Uh, this means the doctor can charge almost unlimited amounts, and the hospital even more so. The hospital is much closer to the, to, uh, the so-called monopoly situation. Uh, a lot of cases where the, the, the medic insurance or Medicaid or Medicare are on the right hospital costs, but not non-hospital costs. So then the effect of this is to shove the person in the hospital as quickly as possible and then get the insurance right. You have a, a shift of medical care toward the hospital because the hospital is an authentic certified thing there, and the government will and the insurance will pay it. Uh, and, and and the peculiar thing is now, after, after so many years of this, all of a sudden the, the medical authorities and the medical Profession, medical, political profession. They've suddenly gotten wise to this. They think, hey, maybe there's been a relationship between the Medicare and the prices going up so, so far. You know, by Dern, uh, they finally woken up to this. Uh, instead of finding out from economists what's going to happen, they, they have to learn it through hard experience, which is the result of this situation. Uh, the result being, of course, the, the patient public is not really that much better off of Medicare because they have to. They have to pay this enormous amount anyway, and they make it up through taxes. Uh, that's essentially the demand side. And on the supply side, <coughs> you have a situation that's been going on for many years, keeping a supply curve drastically to the left. Um, <coughs> the watershed there was 1910, the black year of 1910, when uh, the Carnegie Endowment Corporation, the Rockefeller Institute, and the General, Rockefeller General Education Board of the American Medical Association co-sponsored the famous Flexner Report, Doctor, I forget it was Abraham Flexner or Simon, Abraham Flexner, they were both, both brothers, I kind of got them mixed up. Anyway, Dr. Abraham Flexner issued this report on med- medical education. The report swept the country. He said that there were, most medical schools are low quality, and uh, <clears throat> they, didn't, they didn't meet his high standards, and therefore they should we put out of business through a system of state licensing in medical schools, also hospitals. Medical schools were the key. There were licenses for doctors before this, so they weren't that important. This, the license for medical schools uh, put a stranglehold on medical education. See, the difference, for example, between the bar, the, the bar association, and the AMA is this: uh, you don't have to be go to a certified law school in order to pass the bar exam. You can, if you want to, be self-educated, be an apprentice to a judge, and that sort of stuff, and take the bar examinations that way like Abraham Lincoln did. Not so many people do it now, but there's still people who do do it, and it's honored by the legal profession. But in the medical profession, you can't just take the medical exam. You can't study on your own or be an apprentice to some doctor. You have to go to a certified medical school, certified by the state. The the state appoints the board of licenses, uh, which consists of appointees of the American Medical Association. So what you have is a state partnership of state and American Medical Association running the medical profession in every every state. also, this is supposed to be, of course, to ensure quality. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. The point is that the supply curve is limited tremendously, shifted to the right. Uh, at the time, in 1900, 1905, there were 192 medical schools in the United States. Shortly after that, there were much less, There were, by 1944, there were 69. In other words, there were half the medical schools in the country who were put out of business by this process, state refusing license to license these medical schools. Well. Uh, And this pushed the supply curve to the left. Number of physicians, the 1900 number for 157 positions per 100,000 people. 1957, there 132 positions. The position shortage comes about, obviously, through this limitation by state licensing procedure. Well, all right, you say, well, this is a good thing because it's true we have to pay a higher price, but the the quality is higher, because we have these state boards and state diplomates and everything. Well, all right, in first place, the analogy there, the famous analogy, is that is if the government passed a law saying, from now on, since the consumers deserve Cadillac automobiles, so no less than Cadillacs, we hereby pass a law outlawing all cars that are inferior to, to Cadillacs in their construction, horsepower, whatever. And that would mean, of course, that anybody who had put a Ford, anybody who afford a Cadillac would get to enjoy Cadillac riding. On the other hand, the rest of us would have to walk. In other words, we wouldn't be able to buy cars at all. <laughs> So the um, the, so the quality thing is a monopoly gimmick. In other words, it's a, it's a long-standing monopoly gimmick since the 17th century, where, the, where production is outlawed on the basis of, well, this is a low quality, and consumers aren't, don't deserve low-quality stuff. Uh, I mean, it's like saying I mean, we should outlaw plastic, because really the, you know, the non-plastic stuff, the wood, is much higher quality. In a sense it is. On the other hand, we might prefer lower quality a lower price. Why must I go to a Park Avenue doctor in order to cure my hangnail? Why, why can't I go to a local, local herb herb specialist or
1: something
0: <laughs> for 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 a dollar instead of having to spend fifty five dollars on my Park Avenue physician? So the the consumer should not be deprived, it seems to me, of a so-called low quality service uh, if he wants a cheaper product. Uh, <clears throat> the um, interestingly enough, who was Doctor Abraham Flexner? Doctor Abraham Flexner himself. Who ran? Who decided on all these medical school business? He, he was not a doctor himself. He was not a physician. He's not even a scientist. He's not a medical educator. He owned a prep school down in Maryland. He was a bachelor of arts. What gave him? What gives him? What gave him this great power to decide, etc.? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. That's a—that's a teaser.
1: <coughs>
0: okay. Uh, as a result of this, also we have situations, for example, where you can be a, a licensed, qualified physician in New York. And go to medical school in New York, if you're trying to shift to New Jersey, you can't do it, because you have to go through the same process in New Jersey. You can't just automatically shift. Again, it's a monopoly situation. The shift in supply curve to the left, trying to keep out competition. <coughs> um, there are other processes involved here. One of the, one of the processes that as we'll see later on with price control and rent controls cetera, the, Uh if you, if you give the producers power over the, the market, over, over supply. Uh, this means that you have all sorts of much, much more room for discrimination than you have before. Because in other words, if, if you give the building superintendent the power to allocate uh, apartments rather than the price system, it means the superintendent is going to allocate in the, according to the race or religion he prefers. Well, same thing happened with medical school. You have the this artificial shortage of space, spaces in medical school. The result is you had a much, much greater increase in discrimination. Against, for example, Negro, uh, Jewish, and female applicants, so that the number, the number of female doctors dropped considerably. There uh, were much fewer female physicians. I mean, absolute number, not just per thousand people. Much fewer women physicians in 1940 than there were in 1910. So you had this, this crackdown then on the so-called minority groups as a result of this of giving the power over the supply of, the service to the occupation of the profession itself. Uh, in other words, they give them the power to ration spaces. <clears> then <throat> you had situations where people who were couldn't get into medical school, which was pretty absurd because a lot of, in other words, people who are intelligent, got good grades, could get into law school, but could not get into medical school. Again, the reason was there was a tremendous shortage, an artificially created shortage of supply. And people won't used to go to Switzerland and try to get an MD there and try desperately to come back here, and so forth and so on. All was a result of this artificial restriction. Uh, Another thing about quality is <clears throat> excuses. Of course, the quality of the consumer needs high-quality medical care is being protected. However, in every one of these cases, not just of course for physicians, but also for barbers and everything, photographers and every other licensing law, there's always a so-called grandfather clause, which is true in the medical profession too, exempting existing doctors from this from these from these requirements. In other words, uh, when the thing was passed in 1910 that you have to go to such and such a medical school to be a licensed physician. This is not applied to Joe Blow, who might have been a, gotten a phony degree in, in, in car washing or something, and it's, you know, it's, it's committing surgery on public. He could continue doing this until the age of 80 without any problem at all. So the fact that, that uh, the so-called quality, quality uh, protection of the consumer never applies to existing people in the profession, either doctors or photographers or whatever, seems to point very clearly to the conclusion that the object of this whole thing is monopoly and restriction rather than Worrying about the consumer. consumer is the last person to be worried about in this, in this situation. Uh, the, uh, of course, there's no recertification procedure, so the doctor can probably forget everything he knew about when he went to Bellevue and not read anything for the next 50 years and nobody does anything about him. It's so-called quality guidance that never somehow applies to him. Uh, there's another aspect of this, which I don't want to get too, too much into, which is price discrimination, where the, the because of a monopoly element in medical schools and hospitals, uh, the hospital-connected physicians are able to ch- soak the rich. In other words, they're able to charge much higher prices for the same service to rich patients than they are, than they are to poorer patients. This is done, again, in the name of humanitarianism. That's all bourgeois, right, humanitarianism. The point is that uh, There are are plenty of free clinics. This has nothing to do with the question problem with free clinics. This is a a point where uh, a surgeon, for example, can charge five times as much for an apodectomy to a rich person as he does to a poorer person. A dentist doesn't do this usually. That is more or less the same price. Psychoanalysts don't do that either because dentists and psychoanalysts are not hospital-oriented. The closer you get to the hospital, the closer you get to the the source of monopoly power and the state licensing of hospitals and medical schools, and so there's been studies of this showing that, that those physicians, those medical practices, which are not hospital-oriented, do not price discriminate, do not soak the rich, whereas uh, those that are, are hospital-oriented do, <coughs> particularly surgeons and anesthesiologists. And if we note, it's not an accident that the surgeons are in total control of the AMA, for example. There's not one, I think there's not, there's not one officer of the American Medical Association who's not a surgeon. It's not an accident because the surgeon is the closest to the source of monopoly power. Well, they're they're only hospital oriented. Uh, <clears throat> by price discrimination, I mean this: that the, usually people cannot price discriminate. For example, uh, if, if Rockefeller, suppose Rockefeller loves Wheaties, and I'm a Wheaties salesman, you know I see Rockefeller walking in, and I charge him five thousand dollars for a box. Why not? He can afford it. But the point is that he can then he can hire somebody else, he can hire a stooge to come in and buy for his usual thirty-five cents or whatever, and he or, or he can buy you know, a black market, a black Wheaties market on the street. So competition will usually eliminate the, the possibility of soaking the rich on the market. But in the medical profession, especially the hospital-oriented medical profession, there are various ways, such as, this, such as state licensing of hospitals prevents this. In particular, um, all sorts of ways, of still, uh, one, one area, for example, econ- economists will always say to watch out. Whenever a, whenever a profession has a special code of ethics, I mean, usually there's just one code of ethics for people, golden rule or whatever. Whenever you have a profession that has special ethics, like photographer's ethics, watch out because monopoly is at work. Fleecing of the public is at work. So so-called medical ethics are part of this. so-called medical ethics for example, but somehow unesthetic or immoral to advertise. What this means is unesthetic or immoral to compete with your fellow doctors, take business away from them, cut prices and so forth. Uh, it's not immoral to advertise blue cross. Luke cross can advertise full page ads in the times all over the place and the medical profession loves it. Why? Because this increases the demand for, for all the doctors. Whereas, if one physician or group of physicians advertises, this will cut into the man of others and this is nasty and competitive. You don't want, you don't want competition that will cut prices and benefit the consumers. Uh, the, uh, getting, by, getting back to the Flexner Report, and where, why Flexner got all this power, even though he was not a physician, a medical educator, or a scientist, and why he was able to put half the medical schools in the country out of business. His brother was Dr. Simon Flexner, head of the Rockefeller Institute of Medical Research. I'd um, say he was sponsored, his research was sponsored by Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundation. The, um, the Carnegie and uh, Rockefeller Institute had a certain bias technological, scientific, ideological bias in, in physical medical therapy. I don't want to get into the medical therapy area. I don't want to start defending one therapy against another. I do want to say that uh, there's a certain in, in, innate bias of the Rockefeller Institute uh, for drug, synthetic drug therapy. Uh, for example, Rockefeller Institute of Medical Research is constantly sponsoring synthetic drugs, so new, new synthetic drugs. Uh, on the market. Okay, uh, fair enough. However, there was in 1910 before the Flexner Report two competing kinds of medical care, each of which was equally respectable, I might add. Allopathy, which is now called medicine, <clears throat> and homeopathy, which was a completely different kind of doctrine, which said instead of giving synthetic drugs, you should give teeny doses, very, very teeny doses of natural herbs. The the, the economic point here is that synthetic drugs are extremely expensive, as we all know, and also have a beautiful feel for profit and manufacture. Natural herbs, however, are very very cheap, especially with small doses, and extremely inexpensive and not much room for profit anywhere. The the, the medical schools that were put out of business by the Flexner Report were mostly homeopathic schools. We have a point now where it's almost impossible to find a homeopathist
1: homeopathy,
0: homeopathy under the age of 75, because there ain't no medical schools in homeopathy. So if you want to find a homeopathic practitioner, you have to look high and low, and he's he's often half dead. But uh, we are prevented from enjoying the possible benefits of homeopathy by the the savage, I should say, compulsory outlawing of homeopathic homeopathic medicine. Uh, Also, of course, uh, we've seen the medical profession turn against other repeating therapy like acupuncture, try to outlaw that and so forth. Uh, the punchline here again is that the Rockefeller family uh, is heavily invested in synthetic drug products, That's synthetic, synthetic drug companies. There might or might not be a connection there between <coughs> the fact that the Rockefeller Foundation sponsor and Rockefeller Institute sponsors uh, research which puts the competing allopath, uh, competing homeopath, out of business, and then uh, and then pushes allopathy through fairly well. So what I'm saying is that the consumers are not only deprived of the of the cheap the cheap herb specials, He's also deprived. He's also deprived of competing therapies, which may or may not be uh, workable. Because of the the total power given the AMA allopathy, we're we're totally deprived of enormous number of other competing possibilities, which could be could be there and which. Uh, Market might pop up in the free market, which uh, outlawed out of exists. The uh, cryobasin has been outlawed. Interstate commerce, Hoxie, uh therapy for cancer has been outlawed. Interstate commerce, and so forth, and so on. Uh, even <laughs> <coughs> even crazy old Wilhelm Reich was spent his last years in jail because of the, the outlawing war orgone therapy, which is which is for food and drug administration accused of being fraudulent. Uh, it might might work, might well have been incorrect. But certainly, it seems to me the consumer has the right to try it. You're anyway, right. The poor old Reich uh, was, was jailed because he had, he, he insisted on renting his Orgone boxes out for uh, therapy, and the FDA said they don't work on a, uh, they're fraudulent. Therefore, you're, you're hereby sent to prison. While well, all this is
1: <coughs>
0: methods by which Orthodox medicine restricts the supply of the profession, increases the demand for it, restricts competition within it, especially in hospital-based areas, and uh, outlaws any sort of uh, competing approaches. Uh, thereby we see, well, we see not only how supply and demand is influenced by government action, we also see how, we also see what the problem monopoly really is, we'll get back to that later on, but so-called monopoly. The problem monopoly is always government, it's always government getting in there, restricting supply uh, and pushing prices up. Okay.